0: I am JD Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair here on WORT, and I have a request. Madison Magazine is running their annual Best of Madison competition, and I need you to go nominate A Public Affair as the best podcast Madison has to offer. All you have to do is go to tinyurl.com slash vote W-O-R-T. Nominations are open all throughout this month, and you can nominate us every single day. Now, the actual voting doesn't take place till June, but if we're not nominated, we can't be voted on. So go nominate us. Again, that's tinyurl.com slash vote, W-O-R-T. Thanks so much and I'm so excited for everyone to know that a public affair is the best podcast in Madison. mic because I like to take you to another mental level. power frequency radio modulation.
1: Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host. We live in capitalism. Author Ursula K. Le Guin famously wrote, "Its power seems inescapable." So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings, said Ursula Le Guin. Today we're going to talk about a new book that offers an exciting roadmap for imagining this kind of resistance and change. The book is called The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism. In this book, my guest Aaron von Singen and his co-authors Matthias Schmelzer and Andrea Better make a sweeping case for why transforming society to live without economic growth is, quote, not only possible but also desirable and will make society more just, democratic and truly prosperous, end quote. Here to tell us more about this vision vision is Aaron Von Singen, postdoctoral researcher at the University of Vermont and co-founder of Uneven Earth, a website focusing on ecological politics. Congratulations on the book, Aaron, and welcome to A Public Affair.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: And welcome listeners today. We'd love for you to join our conversation about degrowth. If you have a question for our guest, want to share a perspective, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at talk or reach out on Facebook. We're going to have a wide-ranging conversation today. But first of all, we want to root ourselves in some broad definitions with a concept like degrowth, figure out, well, what exactly does this mean degrowth? And then, of course, we'll talk about where growth comes from and the the idea of growth as well. But let's start today, Aaron, with degrowth. What does it mean?
0: So degrowth is a simple idea, really. It's basically the proposal that we could have a society, a prosperous society, a flourishing society that doesn't depend on economic growth and at the same time reduces the amount of material and energy that it uses and reduces its environmental impacts.
1: So where does this term come from? Sounds like a fairly straightforward idea and certainly meshes with many different progressive uh, narratives and ideas about how to transform society. Where does it come from originally and how has it been bubbling up lately?
0: Yeah, so um, I think starting in the 60s, you already had quite a strong... um, movement uh, where uh, an environmental movement where people kind of started to realize that, um, you know, there are real limits to the uh, kind of um, economy that we have. There are there, um, environmental limits, planetary limits. Um, but the word degrowth really uh, picked up, um, you know, people kind of use, used the word at the time in an offhand way, but it became a, solidified into a movement, I would say, In the 90s, when, um, you know, it was kind of like the Clinton era. Um, Everything was going just fine. You had sustainable development. It just all felt like everything was improving and getting better. And then um, you had a French magazine, um, which was kind of like the French version of Adbusters, and they uh, came out with an issue titled um, Sustainable Degrowth and uh, Social Justice or something like that. Um, for a society towards well-being Um, and at the time that word degrowth um, was actually meant as like a provocative term because everything was about sustainable growth at the time Um, and uh, still is now we are talking about green growth Um, you know we're always trying to uh, we're always hearing about how it's all about growth everything is about that things need to grow. And degrowth was kind of, um, you know, one, one historian, um, called it a missile concept, um, launched at the idea of endless growth. Uh,
1: You tell this, uh, go
0: ahead. Yeah. So recently it's been interesting because we wrote our book during the early days of the pandemic and it really felt that all of a sudden, Um, when the pandemic started, this word degrowth really um, caught people's imagination. And because I think we just were seeing an economy that was privileging people's lives over, uh, privileging economic growth over people's lives. And it really felt like we were sacrificing our lives um, for, for this idea of economic growth. And I think it really started catching on um, more recently because of that.
1: And you tell a story in the introduction to the book to build on what you were just talking about there during the pandemic about how this concept re-emerged specifically in the Netherlands and, and caused quite a, a public mainstream conversation about whether growth is a good thing. Can you tell us a little bit more about that story?
0: Yeah, so the degrowth community has kind of been trying to intervene in the public um conversation for a few decades now Um, but really um when the pandemic started um the there was kind of like almost a lack of real discussion about about what we were doing and why we were um why we were really pushing as i said for an economy barreling towards trying to achieve all kinds of growth metrics when we were just, you know, um, completely ignoring um, all the things that, that make life worthwhile. Um, and um, like caring for each other, making sure that the elderly are taken care of, making sure that um, essential workers are able to do their jobs safely. Um, and then in the Netherlands, um A few uh, degrowth scholars, they created this, uh, they they wrote a a public letter, actually, they published a letter with uh, five policies, um, proposals, kind of um, informed by the degrowth movement, what the degrowth movement has been talking about, um, kind of in relative isolation, and it exploded. It did so well and it 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 became part of the national discussion and when something like that happens in a small country like the Netherlands um it really it just takes over and everyone was suddenly talking about it um that it's it's I think it really spoke to what that Ursula Le Guin quote that you mentioned where suddenly people are like no we could just do this totally differently we don't have to do it the way that we're that we're doing it right now. We could just try something else.
1: Um, so it's, yeah. it's become this sort of uh, shorthand for different approaches to trying something else, alternatives to capitalism. And, and we'll flesh that out some more as we go here today, but I'm sure we might have listeners asking, well, wait a second, what's wrong with growth? I'm all for uh, reorganizing society's priorities around care, taking care of people. Um, what you describe about an economy of abundance is great. Um, I thought that maybe sustainable growth was achievable. Why do we totally need to rethink growth itself? So you lay out eight critiques of growth in the early in the book that established this need for degrowth. Can you tell us a little bit about those critiques and along the way a little bit of the history of the idea of growth as well? Yeah, so,
0: um, in, in uh, degrowth, um, I think something that really appeals to me about the conversation around degrowth is that it's a holistic approach. You can't just, uh, you know, uh, it's not one single thing that's the problem with um, this current economy. It's, it's that there are lots of really interconnected issues, um, you know, from, from um, the way that this economy devalues women's work um to uh like care work um the way that it devalues nature um and ecosystems and also just the way that for example technology um is uh kind of forced on us and totally transforms society without us really having a democratic say about um you know what place it, it can have in society um so you know uh degrowth kind of takes a lot of these uh critiques and brings them together in a in a holistic picture um a, another critique being um uh, the the cultural critique is we, we we're in a society where we're, we constantly feel like we're have to accelerate where we're running on a treadmill just trying to catch up trying to be more productive as individuals um and it, it's just it's um we're all kind of uh burning the candle at both ends um and um so it, degrowth kind of tries to kind of bring all of those critiques together into a critique of growth um it's not just a, a simple um growth is bad it's that we have to have a um a balanced idea of, of what we're talking about here but then that leads to the question what is what is economic growth Um, And I think um, it's actually kind of surprising um, when you look into the history of this concept, because a a lot of people don't realize that uh, before the 1950s, no one used this phrase economic growth, even even the economy was something that people didn't talk about. It it was, uh, you know, maybe unemployment people talked about or um, whether there, yeah, whether there are enough jobs for everybody, Um, but the idea that economic growth was doing badly or well it just didn't exist um, and at the time you know it was post-second World War um, and you're starting to have this really big first of all conflict in the United States with domestic uh, labor movements who were who were really rebuilding their power after the war and then uh, the Cold War you you started having the USSR, being this major, um, major enemy. Um, And America had to prove itself and its economic model. So um, they started developing this, um, like um, economists started developing this metric, the gross national product, which we now call the gross domestic product, um, to kind of show our economy is doing really well. Um, However, we can't give you the things that you're demanding Um, until our economy does better. Like, we'll just need to get over this next crisis then, um, and we need to cut costs here and there so that we can um, stimulate more and more growth. Um, But you can only get the things you want, like less working hours, uh, better healthcare, once we do that thing. Um, But when you look at it, what economic growth, what GDP measures, it's basically just a measure of how much is capital... Moving around, um, how how many uh, how much money is kind of uh, flying around everywhere, um, and that's not a metric of well-being. <laughs> that's just a metric of how much money is what money is up to, um, and uh, but that really recent um, really recent idea, economic growth, has had an enormous impact on our lives. Um, And it's our argument and the argument of the degrowth movement is that we have to recognize that impact. We can't just say, um, oh, we just need a different kind of growth. What we're saying is, no, we need to frontally deconstruct this idea, directly deconstruct this idea that it's economic growth that's going to give us well-being when it's actually just um, policies that support (laughs) well-being that will do that.
1: You did a great job there of uh, talking about how we got on this economic growth treadmill, Aaron. Thank you. I want to reintroduce you here. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Aaron von Singen, co author of The Future is Degrowth A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism. We'd love to have you join our conversation. You can give us a call at 608. 608- 256 2001 extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook to talk today about degrowth and why it's a good idea, according to our author today. Um, I want to start to get into some of the critiques that have emerged of this idea of degrowth, which will also lead us into this big tension that you described between austerity um, and scarcity and abundance. Um, Some perceive degrowth as really all about just saying uh, we're going to have an age of austerity now. Everybody in the global north needs to cut back. How is degrowth not that simple? What makes it, as you say, there's a word that you use, um, convivial, uh, that it's not just about sort of sacrifice?
0: yeah so we recently published a piece um in in al jazeera um uh, basically with the title degrowth is not austerity in fact it's just the opposite um when people hear the word degrowth they yeah they think oh you're just trying a, a you know uh you're it's this is like a a rich person problem um you just think that you know we should all be hair shirt hippies and um you know we should all use less and, um, and you're actually going to try to take away um, all the things that that working people need and working people just need, they need more um, things right now. Why, why would you want people to want less. Um, and it's it's interesting because um, really what degrowth is a proposal for is it precisely an economy that does not depend on Um, This kind of cycle of recession and then collapse uh, and then uh, cutting all the public services so that you can maybe stimulate growth again, um, deregulating sectors of the economy, and then uh, hopefully uh, increasing uh, economic growth again in the future. Um, That's basically the cycle that we've been having in the last uh, uh, 80 years. Um, What degrowth is proposing is to break out of that cycle, we don't need to, um, we don't need to cut public services, we don't need to, um, we don't need to basically gear our economy towards, um, towards increasing um, growth, what we need to do is actually guarantee that people have the things that they need, and more. Um, And often that is actually um, a really uh, affordable thing to do because once you start looking at it, um, you know, you provide public transportation, um, you provide healthcare, childcare, um, that people are able to start um, living healthier lives, living better lives, Uh, public parks, leisure spaces, um, public swimming pools. Those are all things that um, are really attainable and actually really affordable um and that's that word conviviality is 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 one that i think is 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 really a beautiful word it you know it's it's root is um so living together like how do how can we have uh, an economy that's about living together living in mutually supportive relationships with each other um and you yeah i don't know you can kind of imagine that if, if you've ever been to a public park um, everyone's having a pip- picnic. People are barbecuing, sharing ingredients with the people next to you. Um, it's it's kind of like an economy that's about more of that, you know, about more um, conviviality. Um, definitely not uh, about austerity. It, it's the opposite of that.
1: And in fact, you have a section in bo- your book where you lay out how. Um, our current growth-based system is dependent on uh, scarcity so rather than perceiving degrowth it seems like you're arguing as the economy of scarcity you're saying the one we live in right now the growth-based system relies on this simultaneous scarcity and abundance because we have an abundance of stuff but we have a scarcity mm-hmm. of all that you were d- describing, those elements of conviviality and ways that uh, people's needs are taken care of. And uh, I just want to bring in a local example here, and, and maybe you can uh, elaborate on how this illustrates this larger idea. But here in Wisconsin, we have a, currently a $7 billion state budget surplus. Yet many of us are functioning in conditions of austerity. Though I'll speak from personal experience in the education system, for example. From kindergarten through public higher education, we have been in conditions of austerity. And once again, the, the calls for more austerity are coming down the line right now um, in the UW system, for example, public higher education, with the exception of UW-Madison, which is uh, funded in many ways that continue it, enjoying uh, abundance but the rest of the system is uh, in conditions of austerity how can this be true that at the same time we have uh, this abundant budget surplus but at the same time education of course is not the only example lots of us are living in systems of scarcity
0: Mm -hmm. yeah so something i I like to say is that uh, the economic system we have is about private abundance and Uh, imposed public scarcity. So, um, you know, if you're wealthy, you can have what you want. If you have enough money to buy all the things, to get a private jet, fly around, um, go to fancy resorts, it's an abundant life. Um, But scarcity is is imposed on us from just the very environment that we live in. Um, You know, there are states where you can't... um, Capture rainwater. Uh, there are places where um, you know you 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 can't. Even though there might be a plot of land that is you know very fertile, you're just not allowed to garden on it. Um, and uh, that extends to our public systems. Um, so libraries are being defunded around around the United States. Uh, local media also is 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 being um, you know, is seeing a huge crisis, um, and yeah, I I, I think uh, it just speaks to really when you get down to it, it's what what do we value in a society? Why does Wisconsin have eight billion? I um, don't if that was the number seven billion, um, yeah, sir, Roughly seven billion surplus um, when they're defunding all these other things. Um, that it's like, what what do you value? that's the real question. What do we value in a society? Do we value um, something like the local library, which provides needed goods, um, needed th- services to people, a place for people to hang out, um, a place for people to access the knowledge that they need to improve their lives? Or, or do we value, um, you know, strip strip malls <laughs> um, or uh, uh, places um, or, or, encouraging private businesses and private wealth um uh, you know um do we value uh, selling government contracts to to private um companies um do we value like more surveillance um all uh, so much of government money just going towards more surveillance of 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 communities um yeah I, I think it really comes down and that's to me something that I've been loving um, seeing in the reception of our book is what do we value as a society? It, it's degrowth kind of allows that to be opened up, that question to be opened up. Uh, if we don't value economic growth anymore, what do we value?
1: I want to build on that question here shortly, but first of all, uh, remind listeners that you're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM madison i'm douglas haynes and i'm talking today with aaron von singen co-author of the future is Degrowth: a guide to a world beyond capitalism we'd love for you to join our conversation give us a call today at 608-256-2001 extension 9 you can also tweet us at wrt talk or message of public affair on Facebook. So let's pick up the conversation there about values because what you're describing, Aaron, makes this sound like just not a conversation that's just about political economy, but also a cultural conversation. And you alluded this to this earlier. Uh, and your book lays out some of the exciting cultural dimensions of degrowth. Uh, and you also have a section in the book called Degrowth Visions which stresses the importance of imagining the kinds of future we want. And that, as you say, is part, in part a conversation or uh, an imagining of, of what we value and how we make those values real. Tell us about some of these degrowth visions more in particular and their relationship also with utopian and speculative literature is something we could get into as well because I know that's something uh, you're engaged in as well.
0: Absolutely. Um, so I think, um, you know, if, if you're trying to make the world w- world a better place, we're often kind of um, on the back foot, um, you know, always reacting to the next crisis. Um, and, and you know, you, uh, if you're against the system of capitalism, then you're an anti-capitalist. Um, but um, we, we think it's really important to be for. Something to have to have a positive vision that you're working towards, um, and and that's that that's being utopian, uh, and often that kind of is a, a bad word that people um, you know makes people say, "Oh, you're being unrealistic." Um, but how how can you have a utopian thinking that's based on the current reality, um, and that um, kind of from where you're you're standing, you could see how things could be different and personally i think that's really the most important um quality of 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 trying to bring about change it's it's the imagination the power of the imagination um the power of being able to under- see that um we could live life totally differently <laughs> um and so the degrowth visions i think um we kind of encapsulate it into a, a word that we use um, going on the previous question of uh, public abundance um, it's it's a, a society where um, what we have is shared with each other um, where we live fulfilling and meaningful lives um, and um, but especially I think for for degrowth I think the really key part of that is that if we do transition to a more ecological infra, um, infra- green economy, that can't be dependent on uh, continuing extraction and, um, and pollution of global South countries. So we need to have a globally just economic system um, and, and rebalance um, the economic system so that everyone um, has, has a part in it.
1: So what are some of the visions that are that are speaking to you these days that help you articulate or imagine what that world looks like that you were just talking about? Uh, Are there particular authors or um, kinds of literature that are helping you think about these questions?
0: So I'm I'm a huge fan of, of, of science fiction. Um I, I love Ursula Le Guin. Um she's maybe one of she's one of the most incredible authors in that she she was able to kind of have these um, beautiful visionary um uh fictional stories um that are also just wonderfully written and like really um yeah and but she she um I, I was just listening to again um the dispossessed which is one of her most famous books um and uh which is about two societies one which is kind of like a capitalist uh communist uh planet with with many different economic systems um and then another planet um that circles it uh with a based on an anarchist system um and it's kind of incredible because she really makes you imagine what that could look like—a a society without um, w- where everyone gets uh, what they need, um, where everyone can be part of deciding um, what what's um, valuable to to the society. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's just a, such a beautiful. Uh, but th- this is in in science fiction. There's there's a lot um, uh, really great literature out there right now. Um, you have uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, um, another great science fiction author who, um, who's been writing kind of like, uh, very almost realistic, like how, how can we navigate the climate crisis? Um, I, I, uh, yeah. And, uh, that kind of work really inspires me personally
1: yeah i think those are two great examples as well for articulating and making kind of felt in a concrete way what this broad vision you're describing could actually be like on a on a daily basis and that's one of the things of course literature is really great at so we have these visions and uh your book is is remarkable in the ways that it it does so much. Um, One of the things it does, of course, in the second half of the book is anticipate people saying, well, how is this going to happen? Uh, You have a section called Making Degrowth Real. So we should dig into a little bit uh, some of those concrete pathways for actualizing degrowth. Uh, Could you lay those out for us?
0: Yeah. um, So... We were we decided in the book that we we can't give a blueprint. Um, I don't think anyone can give a blueprint, a a map of of how to get from here to there. Um, But what we can do is try to understand how change is possible. um, And what kind of change is feasible. Um, And so we we draw we kind of bring together three strategies uh for making degrowth real um the one is is uh, what we call non-reformist reforms so these are concepts these are kinds of policies um done by local governments by state governments federal governments that seem like they make a small only a small little change but actually open up the door to wider really transformative change um, So one example there, um, you know, that that we talk about is um, universal basic services. Um, So you could imagine there, the way that we have libraries, um, we can actually have uh, an economy that's like a library economy, where where you get access to the things you need um, at cost. Um, So for example, uh, tool libraries, um, where, you know, I read somewhere that, Um, every hammer that exists in the world only has three minutes of use. So we all have these hammers in all of our our closets and it's only being used three minutes in its whole lifetime. Um, so if, if on every block in every community, we have a tool library, um, and we get support for doing that the way a library gets support, it could change a lot. Then we're not all having to go to home Depot every time we're, uh, need to do some construction project. Um, so that's kind of the universal basic services vision, um, and it would change so much. We would have, um, we wouldn't spend as much uh, money or time. Um, we wouldn't, uh, we would, it wouldn't be as uh, uh, harmful because we wouldn't be like producing so many things that we don't need if we're sharing them. Um, so that's the non-reformist reforms. Those are policies that create transformative change. Um, then there's um, what we call nowtopias. So nowtopias are utopias that exist in the present. Um, so that that could be, for example, um, you have maybe a community garden system where local people can kind of get a feeling for what it's like to make decisions together and um to to actually um get their hands dirty and and see what it's like to engage in their environment um or it could be something larger like um you know the zapatistas in in oaxaca who are um who have created a a, and fought for an economic system that is based on um non-hierarchy and that's based on democracy um and, and especially in indigenous, um, sovereignty. So, um, and it, w- you can see like all these examples around the world that are these now they could be small examples or large examples. And I think for me, the importance of now isn't that, you know, somehow we add, we create more and more now and then they just change the system as a whole. It's that, well, it's, it's that they encourage the imagination. If you can see in your local community this totally different way of doing things, it it can really show you that something else is possible. Um, if in your local community you have a tool library, um, someone starts it, you could say, oh, we could actually do that and support that on a wider scale. Um, we could do that in all communities, and, and we could get help for doing it um so the last one is uh ruptural strategies and these are strategies that um they they, they rupture the system they're they're uh, they involve social movements um maybe political education um direct actions um that that kind of create a a break um in the kind of constant spectacle of, of that of, of media and and um, of 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 the economic system as we know it, and and they they really allow for um, something new to be become visible all of a sudden, um, but that often requires really strong social movements um, that that are able to build power. Um, so that it's not just about asking politicians nicely, but it's about actually making it necessary for them to make changes. Um, and there's lots of examples in history, um, you know, the civil rights movement um, being one, uh, the labor movements um, that have really been the reason why we, we have a lot of the um, uh, benefits that we have today you know short working hours minimum wage um benefits uh, with your work at your workplace um those are all things people have fought for and um they were able to fight for it because they were able to build power together um so that's those are the three strategies that we kind of talk about in our
1: book i really appreciate how the book uh doesn't rely on sort of one Specific vision or one specific action, but sees a complexity of various forces, various ways to get involved on multiple scales to create the kinds of changes that the overall vision is articulating. I've been talking with Aaron von Singen, co author of The Future is Degrowth, a guide to a world beyond capitalism. My name is Douglas Haynes, and you're listening to a public affair on WORT 89.9. FM Madison. There's still time to give us a call today if you'd like to join the conversation. The number is 608-256-2001, extension 9, or reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook. So I want to continue along the lines of uh, critique here. And another thing that I think is admirable in the book is how it emphasizes how economic growth has exacerbated inequalities of class, race, and geography. But of course, someone might say, well, how would degrowth address these as the economy contracts? We assume there would be less to go around and inevitably those who are already on the bottom would be hurt even more. So um, let's talk a little bit about that particular issue of class and and race and geography in particular, because I know it's something you and your co-authors have thought a lot about
0: yeah um and it, it to me it, it, it's 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 um i think really important to highlight that degrowth is a movement about uh for economic justice it's it's a movement um that is trying to address the structural inequality in in the current capitalist system um and i i think it it, it starts um with with a few things um so first of all it's really important to see how degrowth would basically um redirect the um resources of the economy towards uh, addressing basically the the basis of of why structural inequalities exist so for example the um providing universal basic services would be one way for um people, no matter their background, no matter where they were born, to be able to address um, the basic things that you need in life. And and not just the basic things, but actually have um, prosperous lives, um, meaningful lives, and find meaning in their lives. Um, So that that would start really, degrowth would start with expanding those kinds of services. Um, So expanding simple things like public transit child care um support um and and making them um a larger part of the economy um another another part of that is is back to this question of value. is, is how do we value um things and in the current economic system and this is getting a bit technical but um basically when a, a firm takes a company takes out a loan um to to make an investment um they're they're assessed on how much money they're gonna make and uh you know the the quality of their assets that they have already but what that comes down to is basically the more money you have the more money that you can make because you can always get really cheap loans um and and what degrowth would actually require is that we need an economic financial system that changes that to where um, instead of private um, private companies, private actors being able to get really cheap money, it would be public actors that get really cheap money, where the expectation isn't that um, it gets that it makes more money, but that it's able to um, meet people's needs. Um, so it would be a democratic financial system, and then the question of where is the money going to come from. Would be totally different, and there's a lot of examples um, around the world of of how you can restructure a financial system um, that that doesn't depend on that kind of um, that that's able to um, guarantee uh, loans and assets for for uh, public services.
1: I know uh, you mention in the book a universal basic income as an idea as well. Mm-hmm for making sure that um, degrowth proceeds in a more equal fashion. Um, is that something that you advocate, you and your co-authors? Do you see it as an essential step in this process? Yeah, I,
0: I, universal basic income would be one of these like classic um, non-reformist reforms, because mm-hmm. once you make it so that people um, like are able to just Subsist, just just be able to to live. Um, then they can start making better choices about their lives and um, going towards the job that they want. They can also spend a lot less time um, working <laughs> and and uh, starting to get involved in in um, the community um, and starting to get involved in in local democracy, which which actually helps cut costs um if more people are involved in the functioning of society it it cuts cuts costs in the end um and uh places become healthier safer places to live in um so um yeah i think universal basic income is one of those just like it would be a total game changer, and it would also address a lot of these um, um, in- inequities, structural inequities in our economy.
1: I ask in part because there's a pilot program here in Madison right now with universal basic income, and um, it's something we hope to be exploring here later uh, later this year on the show. But yeah, it's a it's a great example of, like you said, the, the non-reformist reforms, which is a, definitely an idea here that I'm going to take away from this conversation. Another big idea I'm going to take away from this conversation is that uh, concept of public abundance, putting those two words together. And I want to talk a little bit about food in the time we have left and how food could provide an example of how degrowth could mean public Abundance, and I know you have an expertise in food banks, Aaron, and you've you've seen how food banks have arisen out of a economy of scarcity. So let's talk about how food could be part of the public abundance economy.
0: Yeah. So um, I, I in in my early twenties, I, I volunteered at food banks. Um, I uh, I've spent a lot of time in them, um, and and I studied them. Um, so, I studied how how they evolved, and and um, it
1: really my interest
0: was just like how can this be? <laughs> how how can it be that um, there are these uh, places where uh, retailers uh, are uh, supposedly donate um, all this extra food um, and. Um, that's that. That's where people who have no money, who have who have no resources, go. Um, they're having a crisis in their life, and and that's kind of the place of last resort in in, in North America, uh, especially in the United States, and Canada. Um, food banks are uh, basically a, a, a charity um, band aids on on these structural problems. Um, but when you look into it, it's it's really the food system the industrial food system that that makes food banks possible it um and and what what they're doing is is they're overproducing and they're it's most the system of the food that at food is banks, you're saying
1: is overproducing
0: yeah mm-hmm. yeah industrial food uh, retailers um that most of the food at food banks is these kind of products that were you know, had wrong labeling or, um, had maybe they like made a new brand of chips that no one wanted to buy, um, a new flavor that they're actually trying to test out on the market and see if poor people or food bank users are uh, interested in. So it's really like the, the, that scarcity of, of, of this economy, um, paired with this like manufactured abundance, um, I, I could see so well when I um when I was there and and when I was researching food banks um where where um yeah it, it it's just the system of overproduction and it's totally irrational um because it's 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 not um yeah it, it it's it's kind of pushing the waste of society onto its, its own poor people, um, w- rather than making sure that everyone gets access to, to the basic minimum and, and, and non-processed foods and um, foods that are healthy for them.
1: I'm talking with Aaron Van Singen, co-author of The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism here on a public affair wrt 89.9 fm madison we have a few minutes left today and we've just been talking about food uh and how our current system of helping people have enough food is really based on the scarcity of capitalism so if we were going to apply some of those making degrowth real paths to the issue of food and and correcting what you just described aaron what do you see as a a way to apply that degrowth model to the food system? Well, something
0: I was, I was researching recently was, um, in the second world war, um, there were these in the United Kingdom, there was these things called uh, British restaurants and they fed 600,000 people per day. Um, and they were, they were stopped, uh, by, by the government, um, because, uh, they, they weren't, uh, a lot of uh, they provide way too much competition, um, good competition a- against uh, the pri- private food lobby. Um, and uh, going back to this idea of a library economy, um, you know, we could have we can have community cafeterias um, where people get access to at cost food, um, food that's that's um, healthy and and good. Um we could have that in, in every neighborhood. Um and in a way we do. That's what McDonald's um, <laughs> in a way is. And and McDonald's are the most social places of, of the neighborhood of the neighborhood often. Um they're, they're where everyone wants to hang out. Um
1: My children are so... always clamoring to go to the play place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but um, that yeah. illustrates exactly like... what you're talking about, right? Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. We and we could have that, um, where it's not a, where it's not a, a, a company that's terrible to its workers, um, and, and produces food that we, we don't know, uh, we're learning now what its impacts on, are on our bodies. Um, so yeah, I, I think it would be really possible to really apply the idea of public abundance. It doesn't mean that you can't go to restaurants like if, if you want, you can, you know, uh, you can go to whatever restaurant you want, but that at the very least, anyone could get access to um, a solid meal.
1: It's a really great example. And another example, like you said, of there are these possibilities out there that people just either aren't imagining or aren't taking seriously. Right. And it, it requires. Uh, kind of holistic approach to say, well, if, if we do do something like public cafeterias and do something like tool libraries and do something like community orchards, suddenly, slowly the economy starts to, to transform in a different direction. And Like you said, that's the beauty of a holistic approach like um, degrowth. What, in, in our final couple of minutes here, Aaron, would you really like listeners and readers to take away from your introduction to degrowth? Your your book really serves as this kind of comprehensive introduction to the idea.
0: Um, so I, I think the word degrowth can rub a lot of people the wrong way. Um, some, for some people, they hear it and they're like, that's it, that's what we need. Um, and they get it. But a lot of people really get stuck on that word. Um, And what we're, it may be a bit of a humble, uh, you know, a humble request um, where we want to say, listen, the degrowth movement has been, um, has a lot of really excellent contributions um, and a lot of uh, really uh, important ways that we think have to be thought about today, Um, important visions for how to transform an economy and and we need to integrate um, that kind of thinking, no matter what you call it. You can call it what you want. Um, and that's kind of what what we wrote the book for. And, and what pleases me so much is to be able to have the, to have seen how this book has created so much conversation around, around these topics, around how we could uh, structure a society differently. Um,
1: well, thank you for sharing the book with us, bringing it into the world, and for talking with us today. I've been talking with Aaron Van Singen, co-author of The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to World to World Beyond Capitalism. It's been a real pleasure talking with you, Aaron. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks so much, Douglas.
1: I'm your host, Douglas Haynes, and I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew, producer Jade, and news director Shali, for your help, as always. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Book Beat. On today's show, host Shali Pittman talks with Rebecca Webster about her book, In Defense of Sovereignty.
0: The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision.